Amen. All right, we are going to start at the beginning. Uh, we got multiple questions about the Genesis account. Uh, we talked about creation early on in the Worldview series, and we learned that God made everything. And at the end of creation, he creates us in his image. And this is where we understand our uniqueness, as we understand our value and our dignity as human beings, why we are different from the animals. Uh, but we had a lot of different uh, questions about uh, that story. And so let's start with the one that everybody already you, you, you knew you wanted to ask is what is our belief regarding man's presence or absence during prehistoric and dinosaur times? Did man live at the same time as the dinosaurs? All right. So, well, listen, the answer to that question really is all going to depend on your interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2. Is Genesis 1 and 2 strictly literal, which means it is a six or seven literal 24-hour periods, or are there different ways of interpreting this? Is there more going on than just what a strict literal six or seven 24-hour period would entail? If you take that passage literally is in seven literal days, well then yes, dinosaurs at some level would have had to uh, live alongside mankind. There have been people who tried to kind of make this point and say, we found you know, like archaeological stuff that might hint at it. I don't think any of these are very convincing. Uh, but this is, if you, believe, if you take this hermeneutical line, if you, this interpretive line, you do have to try to say, well, then dinosaurs must have existed at the same time as people. But that is not what you have to assume from this account. Uh, because what we understand about Genesis is that God's not doing two things. Number one, he's not giving us a cosmological account. He is not telling us in Genesis 1 and 2 exactly how you create a planet. It's not his intent because the Bible is not a science textbook. It's not here to tell you about planet formation and galaxy formation and spiral galaxies and how all this is going. He knows all that, but that's not pertinent to our salvation. And that's not what he's there to show us. Secondly, what we learn from Genesis 1 and 2 is that he hasn't told us everything. And when you read these accounts, that should become very apparent. So let me show you something interesting. This is Genesis chapter 4, verses 14 through 19. So if you get out of Genesis 1 and 2, and you get into Genesis 4, verses 14 and 19, and I think we have those up there. Do we have those up there? Maybe not. If you have a Bible, grab them. Uh, Genesis 4, I'm going to read it here in just a second. Here we go. All right, go. All right, so Genesis chapter 4. Here's how the story in Genesis goes. God creates Adam and Eve. They are in the garden. They are expelled from the garden. And then God says, be fruitful and multiply. And so they have children. They have Cain and Abel. Abel or Cain will kill Abel. All right, so this is obviously a bad deal that he's done this. Everyone's mad at him because he has killed his younger brother. Look at this in Genesis 4. Um, this is what Cain says. He says, behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his son, Enoch. And then you see them, and now you have more people being born. All right, does anybody notice anything odd about these verses? All right, so there's only two sons. It's Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel, but when there's told you're going to have a punishment on you, he's worried that other people are going to be mad at him and kill him. Who are these other people? Where did they come from? 
And then it gets weirder because after this incident, he goes and knows his wife. Where did she come from? Because if it's sister, ew. It's a problem because the Bible does not condone incest. Okay, guess what? Who are these people? Answer, we do not know. Here's what you and I just learned. The creation account doesn't tell us everything. It tells us what we need to know and it doesn't tell us everything. So I don't have to force everything into those things. I learn what I need to about the Lord and his relationship with me, about who we are as people, about our purpose in life and God's relationship with us as we go forward. But I do not have to cram dinosaurs onto the ark to make this work. I don't. Biblically, because that's not the only way of looking at this. Whether you look at Genesis 1 and 2 as a strict seven-day, 24-hour period, or you don't, there are fudgy, fuzzy edges on both of those. And what we have to say is, is there are certain things we're just not going to know fully. But honestly, it doesn't matter. Because you, you and I were talking about this today. I'm talking about dinosaurs. Why is it that I don't need to know the answer to this question? Yeah, essentially, we don't have to know the answer about dinosaurs because... There you go. Because... Um, <laughs> Because the, the main thrust of the scriptures and the point of the scriptures, the reason that the Lord gave us the scriptures, is so that we might see and begin to understand his redemptive plan, how he's intentionally worked through human history to accomplish his redemptive plan, and the lineages that he chose to do that. So the way that uh, Genesis unfolds in the, in the creation accounts, and then through the begat, 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 begat accounts, if you're reading King James, is those are the lineages through whom God would ultimately choose to bring us Christ, through whom we ultimately have salvation. The point of the Bible is salvation, and that's what he wants us to see. Dinosaurs have nothing to do with that. Gotcha. They're super fun to talk about and think about, but not pertinent to salvation history. So... We got dinosaurs checked off the list. Uh, let's move on down the list. Uh, so I'm going to let Dave, you can grab this one. We had a second question, uh, which was an interesting question that we got. Why didn't God fix Adam and Eve? So Adam and Eve sin in the garden. Why didn't God just fix them? Right. Uh, great question. Um, here's, here's the short answer. Um, he did. Um, but not instantly. Uh, because... The Bible is about God's redemptive plan and his redemptive work on our behalf. What we're watching unfold in the story of Adam and Eve and then consequently through the rest of the scriptures is how God fixes, but I think a better word for that for us is saves. Um, And so, uh, long story short, God couldn't just say, um, hey, you know what? Bad day for you guys. Let's just start over and wipe it clean and act like sin didn't happen because God is just. Uh, And that would violate God's character, and God does not violate his character. God does not change. So he could not do that. He could not act like sin didn't occur. What he can do is atone for it in himself so that we can be extended righteousness. And that's the story of the gospel, right? Uh, And so ultimately he is fixing humanity, including Adam and Eve, through the work of Christ, but it's not instantaneous. And so we get to watch this unfold in, uh, in Genesis so that by the time uh, Adam and Eve 
uh, have chosen to disobey God, have, uh, have chosen their own wills over the will of God, uh, have been, uh, have been uh, encountered by God and been charged for their sin by God, um, that when God sends them out of the garden, already we have precursors in the book of Genesis about the redemptive work of God because, uh, you remember, the, the, the key sign for them in, the, in their sin is that they realize that they were naked. And God's response to that as he kicks them out of the Garden of Eden is to uh, slaughter animals and make uh, clothing, coverings for them out of animal skin. And so God has already begun the work of covering and atoning for, by the shedding of blood, this time of the animals, for the consequences of their sin. The same way that he would atone for, cover, the consequences of our sin by allowing his son to be slaughtered on the cross. So there, 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 there are instances and indications already in Genesis that God's plan to redeem us is already firmly in place. So long story short, he did, but it's not instantaneous. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think when we ask questions like that, it almost seems a little bit simplistic at first. It's like, well, he's God, just fix it. You can do whatever you want, just fix it. And what these kind of answers help us understand is that the issues at play are much bigger and more important than we sometimes think. So what we just learned from this story is that sin is much more damaging and destructive than we want to give it credit for. Well, you can't just fix it. This is not a little thing. It's death. The way of sin is death. It's big. But also, we as people are made in his image. If you just erase time and move it backwards, or you just ignore that, that choice, or worse yet, you just break us to where we can't make choices like that anymore. Well, then we've stopped being who we were created to be. We're now not people made in his image. You can love him freely anymore. You've broken that. And God values that so much. That's not what he's going to do. Therefore, he unfolds his entire plan to not violate those things, but instead, even through those things, bring us salvation to where we can be restored in him. So even questions like that, that lead us to much bigger things that help us appreciate who we are, how big sin is, and the magnitude of God's plan for restoration for us. So great answer. Um, Okay, uh, a couple other ones. And look, this is a fun one. Why did uh, God permit Satan to enter the garden? Which is a very practical question. Hey, could have saved a lot of time and trouble. Put up a fence, bro. You know, like, I mean, surely, I mean, you thought of that, right? I mean, just why did he get in? Uh, And the answer we came up with was, I'm not sure. Seriously. I I mean, look, I mean, there's one of those things I'm like, I I don't know. Different people have wrestled with this throughout the ages. Uh, In the Middle Ages, there was this idea that God kind of had a plan where this was always just kind of supposed to happen. And Adam and Eve had to fall so he could do all of these different things. Um, But that's not how God made us. He didn't make us with a propensity to sin. He, He made us with the ability to choose, but he didn't force us to sin. And quite honestly, Satan didn't either. He didn't force us to sin. Adam and Eve had the ability to say no. They didn't. But God, in his infinite grace, says, even when you rebel, I will still bring salvation. But there was a different world where they didn't sin. (laughs) And we had a very different story. Uh, That's not Satan's fault. But we ought to be able to say no to that temptation. Adam and Eve could have. They did not. God in his grace comes after us. So there's, I can't give you a full answer as to why he did that. It could be God said, hey, this is, this is the only way. We have to give you that option. But regardless of what you choose, I will come and save you. I don't know. 
So that's, that's as far as I can get in my understanding. You got anything you want to add on that? Nope. You're just going to let me get in trouble. Okay. I see how you're going to play this. Um, all right. I got this one. This was fun. Uh, and a couple of you tipped your hat as to who you were um, when you sent in questions. Uh, look, he says, who did, what did Adam and Eve look like? Like, we've got pictures, you know. I mean, Eve's always got the long hair to make it appropriate to put on walls and stuff, you know. Because uh, she's got to have, like, covering and stuff. Um, and the, either that or, like, the bushes are always very strategically placed, <laughs> you know, in all of the pictures that you have. But what they look like, were they white with really long hair? Uh, you know, is that what Adam and Eve look like? And we actually don't know. The question is, uh, what if an Adam and Eve are not the beautiful contemporary humans we see in Renaissance paintings? What if created in God's likeness is more like Neanderthal people? Uh, and so is that what he's talking about with created in God's likeness? Are they Neanderthals? And I thought you had a great answer to this. Well, I, I, I think we just need to recognize that the biblical concept of being created in God's likeness is not a physical likeness. Um, and so I, I, I would recommend to you, I mean, this is a long, but I, I would, I would recommend to you, um, um, John Grudem's writing on this, um, in, uh, in his uh, systematic theology on the doctrine of man. Uh, but I would recommend even more highly to you, that book's about that thick, I would recommend even more highly to you his son's condensed version uh, called uh, Christian Beliefs. It's a little white paperback book, also a lot cheaper. Um, and go in there and read what he says about what it means for us to be made in the image of God. Uh, but essentially what it means for us to be made in the image and the likeness of God is that he has bestowed on humanity um, the, uh, the, the responsibility of carrying, uh, carrying his renown, carrying his uh, fame, carrying his truth through the boundaries of his kingdom. Um, so back in, uh, in ancient times, uh, emperors, and this is true in the Roman emperor, uh, Roman Empire, when emperors would take control, they would uh, mint new currency. And every time they would mint new currency, they would put the emperor's face on that so that wherever that currency circulated or wherever the image of the emperor circulated, that marked the lands over which he was sovereign. So that when God creates us in his image, that when he tells us to be fruitful and multiply, that as humanity spreads out across the earth, God is marking the lands over which he is sovereign. And so I would actually submit to you, and I might actually write this paper one day, so if one of you do it first, we're going to have a conversation. But I, I, would actually, uh, I would actually really be interested in looking at the New Testament um, go and make disciples, conforming into the image of Christ, going and making disciples in the New Testament, um, is the new covenant version of be fruitful and multiply. Because in both, in both of those instances where God's people go, his sovereignty is made known. And that's what it means for us to be made in his likeness. It's not a physical likeness at all. Cool. I like that. That's pretty good. So, but I think that's the better answer. But if you want to know what they look like, I will default back to, we do not know. Uh, we don't. We don't. We can't know that. Uh, so, but probably not the Renaissance paintings uh, on the wall with the... Really, with the bushes. All right, so, uh, so, uh, so, right, so that was creation. How about we skip forward to the end? We started at the beginning. Let's skip forward to the end. After this past week, we talked about heaven. 
which that engendered a lot of questions from you guys about like, okay, what about, about our future state? Uh, it might have been news to you that there's actually two states you're going to be in. You've got after our death here, but before Christ comes back, and then our eternity with the Lord. Okay, that's actually two different things. Uh, so we had a couple questions about the afterlife. Uh, first one was this. Uh, what does the Bible have to say, if anything, about cremation versus burial? If we receive a new body in the new heaven and new earth, should I choose one over the other when I die here on earth? It's a pertinent question. I deal with people all the time who are having to bury loved ones. Uh, and, and look, this is not just a theological question. It could be an economic question uh, of what do I do and what can I afford to do? So biblically, which one should we choose? Um, uh, well, here's the thing. We do not have no biblical mandate that says, here's how you were to bury the dead. There is no thing that says you have to do one of these or the other. Now, that being said, we do have a clear biblical witness that over the majority of the Bible, people are buried. All right. So when Abraham dies, he is buried. When his wife, Sarah dies, he buys a, a plot of land and say, hey, I, I need to bury my wife. David, uh, Moses is buried. We don't know where his burial place is, but, but he is buried. David is buried. Uh, when you have the prophets, they get buried. There's a whole story. Is, is Elijah or Elisha uh, where his bones bring somebody back to life? Somebody jumps in his grave. Uh, it's Elisha, isn't it? Is it Elisha? Okay. Danny knows. Uh, so there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a, there, you got good. See, that's it. That's why I should have known that. So uh, Elisha, the prophet is buried. Uh, somebody opens up his grave. A guy, you know, they end up dumping a dead body in there and it actually comes back to life by touching his bones, which means he was buried. And then obviously Jesus was buried and not cremated. So the witness of scripture is that you bury people upon death. Secondarily, the burning of the dead is typically a pagan rite. Uh, you see that in kind of Viking stories and other things where you've got other places where they're going to burn, uh, their dead. All right. So, so in the main, if you twisted my arm and forced me to choose one, I would choose burial over cremation. However, if you just begin to have a heart attack, don't freak out. Like I did something wrong and I can't fix it. Okay. Listen, it's ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And for all the people I just mentioned, whether it be Sarah, Abraham's wife, or David, or Moses, or Elisha, I guarantee you that right now, every bit of them is dust. There's nothing there left. They are so ancient as that it is, it is gone, as if they had been cremated. All right? So there's no problem for the Lord uh, to recreate your body. And honestly, we don't know how he's going to do that. Because it does beg the question. People say, okay, so are, are these the ashes that are going to be reborn and remade into me? Possibly, possibly not. It's interesting to actually think about this, but the atoms that comprise your body now are not the atoms that comprised your body about 15 years ago. Your body is constantly regenerating itself. Cells die off and new cells grow. The skin you have now is not the skin that you had 15 years ago. It's different. You say, no, it's the same. It's old, right? You're saying, no, 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 it's, it's different, all right? It changes over time. Okay, and, and so look, even the exact atoms that comprised your earthly physical body back then, those change over time, all right? So God's gonna do a miracle in giving us a brand new body, it doesn't have to be the exact same atoms that were in this old body. And he can do that whether you are dust or whether you're buried or not. Furthermore, think about the countless number of people who are lost at sea, who are lost in battle, uh, who are in different kind of circumstances where they cannot be buried. Uh, think about the folks who died in the atomic blast at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Okay, nobody to bury. 
they can clearly still be reborn and have a, a new body that God's going to give them. And so this is not necessary. Uh, but again, I think because of the biblical witness, because Jesus was buried, I would absolutely lean there. But it is not a biblical requirement because we do not have a mandate to do so. And therefore, I can't push that any farther than that. I see the biblical witness. I would lean there, but I would not force or say you must do that because that would be stepping beyond what scripture tells us. Does that make sense? And, and look, and as you, I, I have this conversation with many of you. I, I mean, people in this room I've had this conversation with because you find yourself in that situation having to make hard decisions on a lot of different levels. Man, call when you're in those positions. Let's have that talk uh, and talk about what you're comfortable with and, and what we can do. We want to help with that. Um, but that's kind of where I would lead. Do you have anything you want to add on that? I mean, the, the only other thing that I would say about that is, I mean, if, if you read early church history, I mean, like really early church history, um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the heroes of the Christian faith, Polycarp, Ignatius, a lot of those guys um, were uh, were martyred, being burned at the stake. So, um, oh, that's right. Yeah. I mean, God, God's not threatened by that. So, um, it, it's it's not going to affect your your eternal existence a shred. Interesting note, though, and I hadn't noticed this until somebody pointed out to me. Uh, many Christian communities, when they bury their dead, they do bury them facing the east. Uh, because they think this is where Jesus is going to return from. He's going to split the, split the sky and come back. Uh, and so if you dr- are driving through a small old town and you drive th- past a small old church, check the direction. Most likely all of the plots are going to be facing east, regardless of the where the church is situated. Again, you don't have to, uh, but that's kind of how they will do that sometimes. I was like, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, all right, so... Um, Let's go through a couple more. All right. So uh, somebody asked this. Will we remember friends and family uh, that were not saved when we were in heaven? It seems, it seems that we would grieve for those who are not saved. All right. So let's play this out. Jesus comes back. We heard about judgment day this past week. Some will go to heaven and then some will go to hell. We're going to talk about that this week. Um, well, how then could I be in heaven if I know without a doubt that I've got loved ones who are in hell? And look, that's a pertinent question for many of us too. Because sometimes you don't know the salvation state of your family members. Sometimes you do. And that's hard. How do I deal with that? How, how am I supposed to live knowing that's the case? And look, I can't give you a full answer of how that works out. But C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, The Great Divorce. Because uh, the, the author there or the character in the main story, he asked that question. He goes, how, how can anybody walk away knowing that their husband or their wife or their, their parent or their child or their, their best friend are, are, are in hell? How could they do that? And his guide says, he goes, I, I see that, that it seems hard to you, but the alternative is worse. The alternative would be much worse. Because what it would mean was this, is that hell would effectively be able to veto heaven. That they would somehow be able to restrict the joy of that place. But because I refuse to go to heaven, you therefore can't be happy. And therefore, I'm going to hold your happiness hostage. By my own, by my own sin and rebellion, I'm going to let that infect even heaven itself that you can't have this because I refuse to come. Well, that's not going to be allowed. So I think in some way, shape, or form, just like the Lord can be comfortable with this because he is perfectly just and perfectly loving and perfectly good, as you and I are perfected in him and have more of that understanding that he's going to give to us, 
there's going to be a way that, yes, we can actually enjoy that. We're not going to forget, I don't think, but there's not going to be an ability for hell to be able to infect heaven with grief simply because it refuses to be redeemed. Does that make sense? So it's, it's still hard for us to understand, but the alternative would actually be worse. And so the Lord is going to be able to work that to where it's absolutely possible. And we know that because it's possible for him. Cool. All right. So uh, how about this? Uh, a little bit lighter question. In our resurrected bodies, will we be the age we were when we died? And some of you are very concerned about this, right? <laughs> and you're like, bro, I do not want this body. Can I have it 30 years earlier? <laughs> Which, what age am I going to be in heaven? Uh, question. No clue. I got no idea, right? I do not know how a resurrection body works. It's going to be a different body, right? It's going to be different by nature. Uh, and so I don't know what that looks like. I don't think that kids are stuck being kids. I don't think old folks are stuck being old folks. This is, I think we're going to have a brand new body. It's going to be a new type of existence, but we're not going to age anymore. We're timeless when we get there. So I don't exactly know how that fits into our understanding. It's going to be a different kind of body. So the question is a little bit moot. Uh, I, I don't, again, I don't think we're going to be infants mentally, uh, but we won't have the restrictions that older age brings because there's no decay. So I would say we are going to be some sort of an adult capacity. Even if people died when they were children, uh, they're going to have that adult capacity in a brand new body. But that's about as far as I can conjecture on that. You want to spitball anything? So I, I would just uh, start with beginning with the idea that the resurrected body is an eternal body. And uh, ours that is not uh, ages because the aging process is a, uh, um, a, a decaying, degrading process. Yeah. Um, and that, we, that won't be, so it'll be an eternal body. And it, Usually when we hear the word eternal, we think, uh, we think uh, of things that have no end, but eternal actually means things that have no beginning and no end. So it's, it is, it's not uh, really a, uh, a when existence, it's more of an is existence. There you go. That's really good. I like that. All right, now, look, it's 7.02, and we're going to 7.30, and I want to give you at least 15 minutes to ask questions from the floor, so I'm about to do some rapid fire, okay? So this is where, if I didn't talk fast enough for you last week, we're going to start talking a little faster. Fair enough? So you're going to have to listen faster. You good with that? This is, we got, it's a team thing we're about to do here, right? All right, here we go. Um, all right, so uh, this is a fun one. Uh, will we, in our resurrected bodies, have to deal with normal bodily human functions and bathroom needs? Y'all sent this stuff into me. All right. Yeah, this is this is actually your fault. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I don't. Know. I don't know what a resurrected body does or needs. I don't know. I know we're going to eat in heaven. I don't know what happens after that. All right. He didn't tell us. Uh, will we recognize our earthly spouse as such in heaven or our former relatives as such? I don't know where this comes from. That we're not going to recognize our our relatives. I don't know where this comes from. The answer is yes, we will recognize our neighbors, our relatives, and our spouses in heaven. Uh, there's multiple reasons for this. Yes, when Jesus Christ is resurrected, they don't immediately recognize him. But when Moses and Elijah show up on Mount Carmel or, or Mount, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter and the guys know who they are. I guarantee you they had never seen Moses or Elijah before that moment. They had never seen a photo because photos did not exist in that moment. 
So how could they possibly, but they knew who they were. Okay, yes, we're going to be able to know our relatives. Now, we will not be married in heaven. Jesus is very clear about this. He says, we will be like the angels in heaven. We are not going to be married. Now, that, that really can be sad uh, for many of us. You're, you're saying, wait a minute. Well, I mean, I love my marriage. And so that, that seems like, it seems like a demotion. How come we're getting demoted and we don't get to be married? What if you flip that and say it's not a demotion? What if, what if all other relationships are actually beginning to be elevated where you actually get to live in love with all the people, your brothers and sisters and everybody that you know? There's not going to really be any procreation in heaven, right? We get to be like the angels, but now we're actually getting the addition of a lot of great relationships, not the losing of this one that is so familiar and intimate for us here. So different kind of bodies, different kind of existence, uh, but you will absolutely recognize people uh, in the afterlife. Uh, Revelation 21 says that there will be no sea in the new, new heaven and new earth, but he created the oceans in the beginning. Why will there not be one? Don't know. Don't know. Uh, he might have a different idea. I don't know what it's like. He, he did create it in the first place. And so he might have a different idea for those. It also is very tr- possible that Revelation 21 is speaking symbolically uh, and not practically. I mean, the entire book is symbolic in many ways. So that does not technically mean that there's not going to be any ocean in the, for the rest of time. Uh, here's one. I understand that we don't know when the rapture will come, but do you have an opinion in regards to fulfilled prophecy as to when the rapture might take place? No. Um, and it might be a surprise for some of you to learn that not everyone is convinced that there will actually be a rapture. This is disputed. Now, I know you read the Left Behind series and we all thought that was the Bible. It is not. Okay? People have thought lots of different things about Revelation through the years. And I'm not going to go through it. We literally, we did this today. There are so many views about what's going to happen. There is premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. And then inside of all three of those things, you've got pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, mid-tribulation, or multiple rapture moments. There's lots of different people who look at lots of different things to say, how is this going to play out And no one of them can claim to say, hey, this one has the fullest biblical backing. All of them are making conjectures about different things based on very clear scriptures. We just don't know. And so, no, I could not give any sign about this. Uh, We we said this earlier today. So many people have made predictions about when Christ is coming, when the rapture is. Do you know what their success rate is on predicting when Jesus is going to come back? Zero. And most of these people were just a whole lot smarter than me. They really were. And so I don't, I don't know. I know that the Lord is coming back and that gives me hope. And that's about all I need uh, with that. Uh, here's aliens. Um, we seem to put God in a tiny box when, we, when people worship the earth as God's only creation. And that he always is only just hovering over the, uh, the clouds. Why do we imagine that the earth is the only creation that he has a relationship with? It's a good question. Are we convinced that God didn't create anything else? He could have done whatever he wanted. He doesn't have to tell us everything. Uh, now, he has not told us about any other creations in this universe. And I don't honestly believe uh, that we're going to run into anybody else uh, in this universe. Uh, but look, the Lord came in human form here. Uh, which, P.S., if you do want to explore some of these ideas, C.S. Lewis and his space trilogy has really explored this. And it is amazing. Uh, the second book, Paralanger, is my second favorite book of all time. They are phenomenal in running out this idea of what if God did create in other places and what would that look like? But suffice it to say, salvation for all humanity comes through Jesus Christ. God made himself like us. That has changed all of creation, 
everywhere forever. And that is an unbelievable gift that God has given to us. Uh, but I don't think we really need to worry about little green men anytime soon. Um, okay, um, we got some big questions. Uh, where did God come from? Dave? Oh, look, we're out of time. <laughs> um, he didn't. Um, if we say that God came from somewhere, it also means that God is going to somewhere, and in either of those instances, he is leaving one place to go to another. Uh, God does not do that. Uh, God is, uh, and he is eternally. Um, that is eternally in space and in time. He is immeasurable. He is uncontainable. Um, so he has no beginning and no end, so he, what, there is no origin to God. We have a question coming up here uh, in, in a little bit that sort of... Uh, gets back at this again, coming from the perspective of the son, um, uh, God, the son, not S U N son. Uh, but God, God has no beginning and no end. Uh, there is no place that he is not. Um, and so he, he, uh, I guess, where did he come from? The answer is no. Yeah. And, and look, how many of you had a kid ask, where did God come from? Yeah. I mean, have you had one of your children ask this question? Mine did like the other day, right? And then we also do the same thing. Here's, here's the problem with the question. It's not a bad question. It just exists in our uh, space and time, and God does not. You ever heard the question, uh, can God uh, create a, a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? And you go, see, I gotcha. God can't do something. Ha! You know, and it's one of those, I'm like, it's, it's a moot question because you're assuming that God is beholden to the laws of this universe. He's not because he created this universe. He exists outside of this universe and therefore is not beholden to the laws within it. So it might seem like a logical fallacy inside, but God isn't inside. He is. That's why God's name, I am. I am. He just is. All right. So, uh, so yeah, so God does not have a beginning or an end. Um, this was a good one. Uh, why doesn't God just remove Satan from the world? Again, this is like, why does why does he just allow us to hang around? Why is he here at all? Couldn't he just take him out? Uh, and look, there's, there's, there's a lot here. Uh, I'm not going to read the, um, this whole parable just because we're, we're running out of time here. But in Matthew 13, uh, you have the parable of the, of the wheat and the tares where somebody comes in and sows wheat all through the field uh, into uh, the Lord's field. Uh, and when they get up, they just say, hey, an enemy has done this to you. Do you want us to go get the weeds? And he says, no, because if you go get the weeds, you're going to uproot some of the wheat as well. Wait till the end and I'll sort it all out. He says, because I'm not going to uproot any of my people in the midst of this. And so here's this picture of, yes, God's going to allow sin to run its course. But at the end, I will sift all of this out and make it work. But in order that I don't lose any of my people, I'm not uprooting it just yet. Right now, we are all under, well, this world is under the sway of Satan. We sold ourselves into slavery and sin. When we rejected the Lord, we became slaves of sin. So if God takes Satan out and throws him into the lake of fire early, guess who goes with him? Humanity. We're, we're in thrall to Satan. So until the Lord comes to release us from that bondage, we're all in jeopardy. This is why God saves us from that. You and I as believers are not in danger of that, but anybody who's not saved is. And so the Lord says, no, you wait until this all plays out. I, I want all people to come to a knowledge of salvation. They won't all do it, but God wants all people to come to a knowledge of salvation. And so he's not going to remove Satan early because that would necessitate taking a lot of other people with him, and he is still seeking to save those people. Make sense?
So it's still painful in this world, but he says, I I cannot do that early. Uh, The Bible, let's do a couple of things about the Bible. Uh, Why did the Bible end? And we we got like four minutes to do like a few questions. So you got to channel me, talk fast. Okay. All right. So uh, long story short about why the Bible ended and what we mean there is, but why did the biblical canon close? Um, In the late second century, uh, late second century, there was a, uh, there was a man that came along um, in the early church. His name was Montanus. And Montanus um, had decided that Christianity had, had grown too comfortable, too easy. And he had a word from the Lord that uh, uh, the, the church, the, uh, Christianity in general, needed to be much more rigid, much more disciplined, more, uh, more consistent in their, in their uh, personal discipline, more consistent in their uh, spiritual disciplines, all those. And, and not, not bad things. But he elevated it to a point that his teachings, he believed, he and his, his, his two prophetesses, right? So there's, there's your signal. If you have a guy show up with his two prophetesses, be warned. Um, but uh, so they show up and they say that they have a word from the Lord that is meant to replace the New Testament the way that the New Testament replaced the Old Testament. Well, that's faulty in its foundation, too. It didn't replace it. It fulfilled it. Uh, but he wanted to do away with the scriptures completely. Uh, to replace it with his new, what he said the Lord was telling him should be the new gospel. And so the church had to make a decision. Is our canon closed or is the, is the Lord still revealing biblical texts to us? And so the, uh, the church councils gathered, they sought the face of the Lord and uh, uh, asked the Holy Spirit to show them uh, what uh, what he was, what and how he was speaking to the churches, and all these churches from all over the place came, and what they found out is that they were all using the same biblical text out of cooperation. It means they they weren't planning to do it. They were they were all using the same. We're all reading Paul. We're all reading the same four Gospels. We're all reading, and so the 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 Holy Spirit used that that encounter with Montanus to lead the church to say. Here are your books. Here is your Bible. And it's closed. And so at that point, the church decided, the, the Montanist heresy, Montanism, uh, the church decided that, the, that the, uh, the biblical canon was closed. The Holy, the, the, uh, Holy Spirit had led them to believe that uh, his, uh, his uh, authoritative speaking through a, uh, a biblical canon was complete. And that's when the Bible closed. You'll also notice that uh, almost, uh, with the exception of one, all of the gospel writers either were apostles or knew the apostles. So we're not really moving beyond that generation as far as new revealed scripture. So there's obviously a much longer thing. Will Collins actually did a whole class on this on the canon. Uh, You may have taken that. And so we'll have more chances to go through even the depths of that. But I really appreciate that. All right. uh, Let me do um, super quick. How is the King James Version related to the Greek? Uh, not much. Um, the King James Version primary source of translation is from the Latin Vulgate uh, that Jerome translated from Greek texts. Uh, but the Greek texts are a secondary source for the King James Version. The primary source for the translation of the King James Version was the Latin Vulgate. So what that means is it's like a step removed from the originals. And so all the other modern translations that have come out since then are doing their best to work from a growing number of Greek manuscripts that we have in the New Testament. Uh, and you're just going to find it to be a lot more accurate on things. And it doesn't have these and thys in it. Uh, so, which, I, and just, just as a practical point, I remember growing up, 
uh, with the King James Bible, and I was thankful for it. Yeah, uh, but I remember when somebody finally gave me an NIV, and it was like the whole world opened up. Because now I could understand it. I wasn't having to wade through this language that wasn't in the Bible. These and thys are not in the Bible. I hope you know that. They came in the 1600s with the King James Bible. But they weren't in the original Greek or Hebrew. That's just kind of what we associate with it. And so when I realized that, I'm like, oh, this is a translation that I can understand. <gasps> I mean, it was just so life-giving and enriching. If you're reading a, a translation of God's word, you have a very hard time understanding. This is why we have multiple translations that help us with this. Uh, we use the ESV here at Double Community Church. I use the NIV and preached out of it for uh, well over, gosh, 15 years. Uh, they're both great. Uh, New American Standard is great. The Holman Standard is very, is very good. Uh, there's, there's lots of different very good translations. Uh, but make sure you find one you can read. Um, okay, uh, I'm going to do this one more, and then we're going to take some questions to you guys. Um, how do you combat the view that science disproves God? Uh, I'm not going to do a full sermon on this. I thought this is, this is important for us to tackle because this is one of the arguments that the culture is giving us. So like science has already proven your God. It tells me that these miracles could not have happened uh, and that God does not exist. Here's the problem. Science actually doesn't have the apparatus to prove that God doesn't exist. They can't. They can say that God does not fit within kind of like this worldview scheme, but saying that God doesn't fit in the natural law system that they created is not the same as saying that God does not exist. They actually can't make the measurements to accurately make that statement. Science is about discovering knowledge. And P.S., we as believers are not in a war with science. We never have been and we never will be. All the early scientists were Christians. The people who started the scientific endeavor were Christians. Most of the early scientific work was done in monasteries. These are people who valued knowledge and the church leaned into that. When you and I are using science and discovering different things, this is part of our dominion. This is exploring things and helping to understand how to develop our world. Science has helped us develop all kinds of medications and, and surgeries and, and different ways of growing crops to have more food, to feed more people, to, to, to help different things, to fix things. I mean, it is unbelievably helpful. This is what Kepler said when he said, I'm thinking God's thoughts after him. I'm discovering what God has created and I get to follow after him. So as a believer, I have zero war with science. Now, science sometimes has a war with us, but the reasons for that war are usually not very scientific. If you really sit and talk to uh, people, especially atheistic scientists, about why they disbelieve, most of those reasons aren't going to be scientific reasons. There's going to be deeper reasons. How did people come to atheism? You'll find it wasn't like, oh, I did the scientific work and that just disproved it all. It was like, I have other reasons for coming to my atheism. Let's talk about those. But science as a whole cannot speak to metaphysical realities because it cannot make any measurements. It can't, it, it can't tell you about those things. Science can tell you the how and the what. It can't tell you the why. They, they can't say anything. They can't speak on this. And in fact, if you take strictly a scientific worldview, you have to give up all of the things that actually make your life valuable because there's no such thing as meaning. Science can't give you meaning. Science can't tell you what is moral and what is not. Science can't get you to the good. It, there is no such thing as good or bad. There just what is what is, but there's nothing behind it. If you're going to take God out of the system and assume this is all just data, and almost every single person doesn't live that way. 
Uh, I read a quote earlier today uh, where he said, Richard Dawkins, who's one of the new atheists, and he wrote The God Delusion and these other things. He says, I'm a strict Darwinist when it comes to uh, evolutionary biology and science and all the things of the world. He says, but I'm a strict anti-Darwinist when it comes to how we should live our lives uh, and how we should order our dealings with people. Well, I'm so sorry that doesn't work. And as a scientist, you should know better. That makes no sense. It makes zero sense. But that's the kind of the, the, the dual-edged sword that they want to live under. But look, we, we're, in, we're in no war with science. Uh, and look, there's some really great books. Um, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book, Confronting Christianity, has a great chapter on this. Uh, Kim T. Keller, in The Reason for God, has a great chapter on this. Uh, there's a lot of different people who've written on this to help us understand, hey, we don't have to worry about that. Um, so we're not in a war with them, and, and I would pray that they would also not be in a war with us. So, uh, okay, we're going to put a pause right there because I get 10 minutes because uh, we've been talking a lot. Uh, and let's take some questions for you. What have we not handled? Uh, Rob's back here with the microphone. Uh, he's going to be roaming around. Okay, here we go. We go back here as well. Um, so uh, what else do you want to know that we have not covered? So I came for this and you didn't say a thing. Uh, like, like, what was it? What are the burning questions that you would love to have answered that we have not gotten to thus far? Anybody got questions? You've had time. I gave you 50 minutes. Anybody got a question? Yay. Come on, everybody right here. Um, I was just thinking, sitting here, what do you think the social hierarchy is, was in heaven before creation? You know, they speak about, you know, Satan was cast out. You know, you know what was going on before? Amen. Yeah, what we know for sure is that Satan created all of the angels uh, before us. That there was a war in heaven of some kind uh, and that Satan and a third of his angels were cast down. Uh, we know very little beyond that. Um, we get hints on it, uh, but you can get a little too deep into angelology or demonology where people, it's almost like studying revelation where people take little tidbits and they kind of build whole worlds on it. And most of it's just speculation. Uh, so we know that they were there prior to, uh, creation. Um, but we know very little after that. Okay, good. That's a good question. Yeah, it's great. Yes. Come on, Carol. Okay. Um, when Jesus returns and there, he will reign for a thousand years, and then there'll be the final battle, who's going to fight in that? I've always wondered that. Who's going to fight in that battle? Are there bad Christians? I don't know. All right. So, uh, again, now, I mean, this gets into what we said earlier. So you mentioned uh, about the thousand-year reign. This is what it, people will call the millennium, uh, that Christ is going to come and reign for a thousand years. And this is where the questions come in of, is there going to be a rapture uh, and then a tribulation and then this millennial reign after that? Some people think that we're actually in the millennial reign right now uh, and that there's going to be this climactic thing at the very end. Um, and so I do not know. Uh, we know that Christ comes back leading a host of angels. Uh, Jesus actually says this himself in Matthew chapter 25. He says, at the end, the angels are going to sift everybody out. They're going to kind of org- on his right and on his left. So we, and then Revelation says he's coming as if on a white horse uh, with a sword coming out of his mouth. I don't think there's actually a literal sword coming out of his mouth. All right, but this is a picture of him in a warlike stance saying, I'm coming to bring judgment uh, and make everything right. Um, but I couldn't tell you exactly who's going to be fighting in that whole thing. You got anything on that? Yeah. So I would just, uh, I, I would strongly commend to you in the, uh, 
the intro to the book of Revelation in the ESV Study Bible. There you go. There are some tremendous articles in there that sort of weigh the different positions of understanding those things. Uh, strongly commend that to you. It's, right, it's, in, it's in the book introduction there. There you go. That's good. Uh, okay, yes, right here. Danny. Oh, come, Danny, what do you, come on, man. Well, I love this series that you're teaching, and this is just awesome to uh, have these questions. Most of the questions in our worldview has been in our rearview mirror of, of uh, the world history past, eschatology, what's coming. But we, we've got grandparents here. Just found out I'm going to be a grandpa for the first time. What about worldview in the present tense? Great affection for your daughter mm-hmm. going into a crazy culture. Grandkids going to colleges where their Christian worldview is going to be challenged. Mm-hmm. The data says not many of them make it past that onslaught of uh, university pre- uh, professors. Give us confidence, or what should we do as parents, grandparents, believers, to fortify our, our children, grandchildren's Christian worldview in the present tense? Yeah, and that's a great question. And I've, I've deliberately not answered some of those questions because they're coming up in the upcoming sermons. So we've been doing background based yeah, and we're, we're coming. Uh, so that's not a dodge. We're going to be able to talk about a lot of those much more specifically in the, uh, coming up the next few weeks. Uh, but here's the thing, and this is why nights like tonight are so important. A uh, couple of things that we can do. Number one, when our kids have questions, A, let them ask. Never punish a child for asking a question. Never treat them as stupid. Never say you should know that or never say we don't talk about things like that. All questions are good. All questions are valid. Because that, that lets them know, hey, they, they can discover this. They need to be coming up with a faith on their own, not just taking the faith that they've received. For students to actually have a faith that's going to last through college and beyond, it has to be a faith of their own. Because if all they have is the faith that they have been given, it will not last long. Here's the second thing. Uh, we cannot give our kids uh, easy answers. Um, uh, I remember, uh, Daryl Bach, uh, from Dallas Theological Seminary. When I was at Beeson, he said this, he came in, uh, and said, part of the problem with a lot of our kids is that we've just given them a brittle fundamentalism. We've told them what to think, do all these things. And as soon as somebody pokes a hole in it, the whole thing shatters because if that's wrong with well, them. What if this is wrong? This is wrong. This is wrong. And then some college professor says the thing, and then all of a sudden it goes nuts. Hey, we, we've got to be able to have a, a much more pliable faith that's open to questions and says, you can ask that question. Let's talk about it and let's discover it. And it might be that they're going to have to wrestle with some questions for a little bit. And we've got to give them the freedom and the space to do that. That's why this is important. Like, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to say, I don't know sometimes. But we want to take them back to scripture and say, hey, some of these questions are complex. We've got to think them through. There isn't an easy answer. There's a complex answer. Let's go get it. And let's look at it and walk with our kids to help them understand it. And then thirdly, we've got to continue to expose them to good, godly, biblical teaching. And, and I want to thank all of you who bring your kids here on Wednesday nights and have your kids, you know, upstairs learning either Bible stories or being a part of our kids programs. Or you've got students over here who are being trained and taught. Look, they're getting a lot of information from the world. Are we as parents prioritizing biblical education for our kids? Are we prioritizing that over sports? I will choose to stop right there Uh, or over vacations or over school valuable as all these things are and they all have their place. Does Christian education and growing to know their faith matter enough to be a priority? 
uh, because the kids don't have a faith to lose, well, of course they're going to lose it. If it's threadbare, of course they're going to lose it. Uh, We need to do our best to be able to prepare them biblically. And that takes a lot of time and a lot of exposure and a lot of being open to questions so that they can stand strong in their faith. Fair enough. I would push that one step, one step further. Uh, Don't, don't just allow your kids to ask questions. Teach your kids to ask questions. Oh, that's good. Teach your kids to think critically. There you go. Teach your kids to challenge in a respectful way. Um, I've got a, I've got a son that's a sophomore at Auburn. I've got a daughter that's a senior in high school who will be going to Auburn next year. Um, I've got to teach them to ask questions when they go into those environments. Um, just so they, I mean, they, they don't know the categories to think in if I'm not teaching them to think in those first, right? So I have to have conversations with them along those lines, which means... Here go your toes, which means before so for you to be able to do that, you've got to know the Bible. Uh, you've got to you've got to be intentionally connected in biblical community, where you are being challenged in the Word, where you are growing in the Word, and when when you are uh, in the Word in a community of other believers, because the Holy Spirit uses the people of God to speak to the people of God. And if you're not in those communities, you're you're hindering your ability relationally for peers, but also as a parent and a grandparent. Yeah, and you need the help. That's why we have a church. So you get brothers and sisters can come alongside your kids to help them. And so that's really good. Okay, we got, we're like two minutes. So other questions? Burning questions? Is your shot? All right, there we go. How do you Well, all right, so I let, hang on. I, yeah, so the question is, how do you explain the Trinity to somebody else? Uh, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to do this, and I'm, gonna, I'm literally going to count you know, this down. 30 seconds for you to do this. I will tell you this. I took an entire uh, course on the Trinity uh, where, where Dr. Bray, the smartest man I've ever met, would take us in. It was like getting in a submarine uh, where you get in there, and he would take us down to the depths of this issue, and I don't even know where we went. And we come back up and go, and that's why we have the Trinity. And I'll be back at the surface going, where am I? Where did I go? Uh, it's complex and it is a mystery. It's also very vital uh, for us. And so uh, with that in mind, 30 seconds for that question. Okay, here you go. Um, back in the late th- uh, mid-third uh, century and going later, uh, there were heresies about the persons of the Trinity. Uh, one of the most famous heresies about the persons of the Trinity was called Arianism uh, because it was started by a guy named Arius. And Arius said that for Jesus to be the son, he could not be the same as the father because who else is a son is the same as their father. Well, the foundational flaw in that is that we're trying to make God in our image instead of letting him make us in his image. So anytime we reason back to God from where we are, we're wrong. All right. And so his, his, uh, his heresy was that Jesus was a demigod, a, a sub-god. Th- th- he was still better than us, but um, he, he, was, he was not quite as high as the Father. And so the Council of Nicaea, the first Council of Nicaea, called by Constantine, uh, came out with an uh, answer to that. The doctrine was the doctrine of a Greek wo- two Greek words put together, homoousios, which uh, same stuff, 
which is the Son, is the same stuff, the same substance as the Father. Likewise, the Spirit also, so that the Trinity are three distinct persons in one God. All right? They're not three, three manifestations of the same stuff. They're three distinct persons. The, the Father will never be the Son. The Son will never be the Spirit. But they are all one God. And we have to be okay with not being able to explain that. Because here, here's the reason. If you have a God that you can fully explain, he's not God, you are. Your God needs to be bigger than you. There you go. Well done. Do you got applause? <laughs> it wasn't 30 seconds, but you got applause. <laughs> Uh, listen, the only way I would answer that question, if you ever, uh, go look this up on Google, uh, go look up a picture of a Tesseract, not the thing from the Avengers, <laughs> but like an actual mathematical Tesseract. It's a fourth dimensional object and it doesn't make sense. We understand that things in three dimensions, it's the fourth. And when you watch it, you go, I get it, but I don't get it. Okay. That's the Trinity. Okay, it's, we understand things in a certain sense, but he's beyond us from a personality standpoint, from a being standpoint, he's beyond us. We can't understand that. I can kind of get it, but I can't fully get it. Uh, look at that, because again, it's that one level beyond us. Uh, okay, we're out of time. Uh, but look, questions are good. So if we did not get to your questions, we're here every week. Uh, you don't have to wait for a Q&A to come ask us. Talk about this amongst yourselves. Talk in your community groups. Just come talk to us. Uh, man, let's sit down and have a coffee. Let's sit down and, and just talk about these things. We would love to. I would hope that not just in homes, but in our church, we foster a, an environment where questions are okay and we can learn more about the Lord in the middle of it. Sound good? All right, guys, thank y'all for being so inquisitive uh, as to enough to give us some questions and to come and listen to some questions and answers. And I pray that you've been edified in the middle of it. Let me pray for us and we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you have revealed to us, God, as we continue to grow and mature, what you're still showing to us through your word, uh, God, by your spirit. Uh, God, just help us. Not just to know more or understand more, but that God, that as we do, we would glorify you more and enjoy you more. And Lord, hopefully be able to help others as well to come to know you in the same way. God, for all of us who are wrestling with, with deep questions, would you guide us by your spirit? Help us to find brothers and sisters who can walk alongside us. Uh, and Father, just lead us to the places we need to be, but we choose to trust you and we thank you for the answers that you give. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much.